passage is from Revelation 3, 7 to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are, are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, church. I'm very excited to invite back uh, Dawn Humphreys. Uh, she last spoke a little over a year ago now at Lord's Love, and she's been coming and sharing the pulpit with us uh, for the last few years. So she's not really a stranger, but I'll do an intro uh, for some of you who haven't met her uh, yet. Uh, Dawn helped plant a Strathona Vineyard Church almost, I believe, 20 years? 18, 18 years now, and she's been a lead pastor for the last 15 years, uh, 16 years. <laughs> uh, Strathona Vineyard is a church, uh, a small, vibrant, multi-ethnic, mixed socioeconomic congregation in the heart of Vancouver's downtown east side. And as we were just chatting before this, she was like, yeah, we, we serve among the poor. Uh, we, we really live and, and love them and uh, bring God's love uh, to them um, in, in that area. And she was also part of the founding team for Jacob's Well, a relationally focused ministry in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Vancouver and was on staff there for quite some time as well. Uh, prior to her life, uh, Dawn spent eight wonderful years living in various parts of Southeast Asia with St. Stephen's Society, a community among the poor based in Hong Kong. In fact, she just came back from Hong Kong. Uh, she renewed her PR card. I don't think many of us uh, can say that, but she has a, her PR card. Uh, came back and uh, maybe she'll... Sh say a bit more about that and uh, speak in Cantonese uh, a little bit as well. Uh, but she's originally from Liverpool, England, and now obviously she lives here uh, in Vancouver. So let's give a very warm uh, LLC welcome to Don Humphreys. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay? Oh, here, here, better, better, in the middle, I like it. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Good. It's really good to be back here and uh, to be back in your home, in your little place where you worship. Um, now, I know that you've been in this season um, uh, and you've been asking this question, haven't you? Maybe you can tell me, but maybe I'll just prompt you of what it means to return to your first love, right? That's kind of what you've been reflecting on, particularly post-pandemic. And you've been sort of in the letters or in these messages to the churches in Revelation, a future in focus, if you like. So I wanted to begin a bit in a bit of an unusual place. I know we've just read the Revelation text, but um, before we started diving into this text, I wanted to think a little bit like big picture, have a big picture question. 
Now, your name, the Lord's Love Church, is a really great name. What does first love mean to you as a church? Is it a feeling? Is it a set of priorities and values? How do you actually discern when you're living into your first love and when you're not? What's that process look like for you personally or as a church? Is it when you notice things uh, are becoming, other things are becoming more important? Or rather, you know, is it sort of a gradual shift? For example, is it contingent on the amount of prayer or the number of church meetings you have, right? Or attend? Is it reflected on how much you give to charity or to the church? Um, how much you're involved in overseas missions? How do we know when we're living or not living the first love in our own church community, our own um, faith community? So, you know, Jesus was asked this question, wasn't he? A very similar question. What is the most important thing? What's the most important word? What's the most important command? What shows God that I love God? In other words, how should I prioritize my life? Where does my heart reside? And do you remember how Jesus answered? Some of you are going to know, yes, I do remember. It wasn't John 3.16. That's a very important text. If you look in Mark's gospel, and it comes up in Matthew and Luke as well, Jesus was asked by a teacher of the law this question. Here it is in Mark 12, and I think it might be up there. Maybe not. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is this, love your neighbors yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other one but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, why am I talking about a text in Mark when we're in Revelations? Because if we don't know what is first or who is first, then we won't hear um, or see what is important. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's kind of like we have to go big picture first before we hone in on sort of smaller things. If you're a mom or dad, and I don't know how many of you are here, and there are a bunch of kids in the next room, if you hear your baby, your child crying, there's almost 100% chance, 99.9%, let's say, there could be that 0.1 that, there's almost 100% chance that you'll recognize it's your baby. Why? Is it conditioning? Perhaps some. It's because you know that baby's cry. You've woken up many nights and tended to that baby. You've soothed that baby's cries because you love that baby. You know that baby intimately. You respond because you hear and you follow. If you're single and haven't had children, it would be like your papa, your grandmother, calling up and saying, I need your help. You're not going to say, Granny, I'm too busy. You're not going to say that, are you? Right? You're going you're gonna to respond and follow 
because you love your popo. You love her, and she's been good to you, and it, it matters to you. Now, if our first love is loving God with everything, recognizing that there's only one God, and choosing to worship this wonderful God with all we are, with everything we have, what does that look like today? What does that look like as a church? And just as important, if part of that first love, along with loving God, means loving our neighbor as ourselves, if the two are inextricably linked, what does that look like? I think Revelation 3, this is where I'm going, has something to tell us, both personally and as a body of Christ, as a church. So the context, the message to the Philadelphia is the sixth of seven messages to the churches um, that the Apostle John wrote in Revelations. And, and as you know, John, the follower of Jesus, is in exile in this land of Patmos for loving Jesus and living for him. He's persecuted and been exiled. And so he's been instructed to write these messages to the churches in Asia. Now, here's the map. I don't know whether you've had a look at a map of it before, but they're all pretty close together. Who knows how far apart they are? But they're all in the same area, right? So each of the churches were experiencing challenges, whether it was persecution or needing a kind of a reorientation towards repentance, needing correction. Do you remember the first message, the church in Ephesus? We heard about the loveless church, right? In, to the message to the uh, Smyrna, we heard about the suffering church, this persecuted church. In the message to Pergamos, we heard about the compromising church. In the message to the church in Thyatira, we heard about the corrupt church. And in the message to Laodicea that you're going to hear next week probably, we, heard about, we hear about the lukewarm church all aspects of communities that can lose their way or can experience difficulty. So in the message to the sixth church, Philadelphia, what is it we hear about this church? We hear about the faithful church. This church has not lost its first love. And unlike five of the six other churches, it does not need to repent, okay? It's kept its first love. So this name, Philadelphia, meant brotherly love. Um, the city was well known for having beautiful buildings, and it was a prosperous city. It was uh, largely in part because it was a gateway city, as you see from the map. So there were lots of comings and goings. It was quite cosmopolitan, and therefore there were lots of temples in this city, and it was known actually as a religious city, a religious city. It also had this reputation for being a missionary city, because what they did is convert anyone who came to Philadelphia um, to the Greek language and the Greek culture. So it had a lot of influence in people actually taking on that language and that culture. And as you know this, as you may have heard about this area, it was prone to a lot of earthquakes. And so actually, sometimes people were so afraid of an earthquake happening at night, they would sleep outside the city, you know? So it's an interesting city, and it's into this backdrop that the Philadelphia church is seen as a faithful church, into all this kind of stuff going on. And we've just read the text probably in the NIV, but I want you to hear this text in the message. I want us to hear a fresh way of this amazing text. So I'm just going to read it to us. 
Write this to Philadelphia, to the angel of the church, the holy true. The holy, the true, David's key in his hand, opening doors no one can lock, locking doors no one can open, speaks. I see what you've done. Now see what I've done. I've opened a door before you that no one can slam shut. You don't have strength, I know that. You used what you had to keep my word. You didn't deny me when times were tough. And watch as I take those who call themselves true believers but are nothing of the kind, pretenders whose true membership is in the club of Satan. Watch as I strip them of their pretensions and they're forced to acknowledge it's you that I've loved because you've kept my word in passionate patience. I'll keep you safe in the time of testing that will be here soon and, and all over the earth. Every man, woman, and child will be put to test. I'm on my way. I'll be there soon. Keep a tight grip on what you have so that no one distracts you and steals your crown. I'll make each conqueror a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, a permanent position of honor. Then I'll write names on you, the pillars, the name of my God, the name of God's city, the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and my new name. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the winds, the wind words, the spirit blowing through the churches. Why are the Philadelphian church faithful? They're faithful because the one they love and worship is faithful. It all starts with Jesus. And just listen to how their first love Jesus is described in verses 7, 10, 11, and 12. You can have a look at it up there. Jesus is holy, echoing Isaiah 6, 3, 4, 25, and 43, 15. I think it's on the PowerPoint there. Look at that. The one, holiness means set apart. Jesus is set apart. The one who is pure without blemish. The one who is consistent with his character all through the Hebrew scriptures. This is the one who's faithful. Jesus is true. Jesus is true in the sense that Jesus isn't fake. Jesus is the very opposite of fake because Jesus is real and trustworthy and authentic He's the real deal, the son of God, the real savior of the world, the crucified and resurrected king, fulfilling the promise in Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, the revelation come true, becoming in reality and actualizing who this God is on earth. I think it's on the next slide, actually, potentially, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. And then remember his proclamation in Isaiah 61 of what he would do. And then he did it. This Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is the key of David. Jesus is the keeper of the keys and the door. In this quotation from Isaiah 22, 20 to 23, Jesus expresses his power and authority, especially to admit and exclude. Jesus is the promise keeper. Jesus is truly faithful to his word. Verse 10 in Revelations. Jesus is the sure foundation and promises to keep the Philadelphian Christians safe and protected. In verse 11, Jesus promises to return and will reward the faithful ones. In verse 12, Jesus promises to make his faithful followers into these pillars for all to see. Pillars that are strong and supportive. And pillars that also have their citizenship as God's kingdom people marked on them. 
Just like the ancient tradition of pillars having the names of priests and special people written for all the city to see. Wow, that's amazing. But just how has this church been faithful? We'll go back to the text. I think it's the next slide. Yes. Look at verses 8 and 10. They highlight it for us. They had joined their little strength to God's strength by obeying Jesus' word and not denying Jesus' name. Verse 10, they had obeyed Jesus' commands and persevered. It's the, it's the past tense. So they had been through some very different, difficult situations. And I love, as you notice, how the message translates it here as passionate patience. What a beautiful phrase. In other translations, it's endurance or steadfastness or perseverance, but it's the same Greek word. It means all those amazing things, passionate patience. So they had been faithful because they had obeyed God. And secondly, they had been faithful because of their resistance. Look at verse 9. It gives us a clue to um, what they had been up against, right? So the Philadelphian Jesus followers were a mix of Hellenistic Greeks who had this polytheistic and animistic temple worship before they followed Jesus, right? And then there were ethnic Jews in these Christian believers and these followers who had previously followed Judaism, but they had now seen Jesus the Messiah, the hope and fulfillment of their ancient scriptures, and they wholeheartedly followed him. Originally, these Jewish Christians in Philadelphia would have been part of a tight-knit community of other ethnic Jews, right? That's how they stuck together, how they maintained their identity. But because of their trust and faith in Jesus, they had experienced severe persecution at the hands of friends, neighbors, and family members. And it had resulted in them being thrown out of the synagogue and you know the synagogue in Jewish culture is like the center of life. And their faith in Jesus had been constantly ridiculed and derided, right? And we see here in verse 8, we hear how they've resisted because they have not denied Jesus as Lord. And they have continued to obey his teaching and follow him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They had done this thing of living out the most important commandment right? To love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor. They were faithful to God in words and deeds. In fact, they had fulfilled, by living the great commandment, they had fulfilled Jesus' instructions in the great commission, hadn't they? Matthew 28, to trust in Jesus' authority, to trust the authority that Jesus had bestowed on them as followers, to trust Jesus at his word, that he would always be with them to the very end of the age. They believed this with their whole heart. They took Jesus at his word, holy, true, the one with the keys, the promise keeper, the one who is the door. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That nutshell of love the Lord, your God, with everything, and love your neighbor. So then there's this interesting thing at the beginning that you will have noticed, the doors, right? The clue to how this is evidenced in verse eight and t uh, 7 and 8 is this imagery of the door. How is all this loving of neighbor and loving of God evidenced. And we're, we're really quite familiar with this imagery of, um, 
of doors in John's gospel, right? You'll remember in John 10 that Jesus talks about himself as the door as the gate. Do you remember that? When he's describing himself as the good shepherd, right? He's also describing himself as the door and the gate um, in John's, John 10, 7 and 9. Kind of, in that sense, protecting the ones in his flock from like predators or oppressors. They're safe when they're with Jesus. So that's one way that the door is um, reflected, the door of protection. And then there's the door of salvation. But John also has in mind, because he's always drawing from the Hebrew text, right? He has in mind Isaiah 22, 22, you know, and 45, 1, when it talks about breaking down barriers and making a way for those who had previously been oppressed and persecuted so that they can stand firm in freedom and safety and have this sense of rescue, this sense of salvation. Jesus is the door of salvation. And in a city that's well known for missionary work, in converting people to the Hellenistic way of life, to Greek culture, thought, and language, Jesus was opening a door with the key of David that's referenced in Isaiah 20, that we looked at earlier as a way that people could come to know him and find salvation, as a way that people, if you look at that text in Isaiah, it goes on to talk about, there's this discovery that the house of David is another way of referring to the kingdom of God, to the city of God, to the temple of God, to all the riches of God. So it's a way that people find their salvation and find their true sense of belonging in who God is. Theologian Daryl Johnson notes, the door to the synagogue may be shut, but I have opened for you another door, the door to the only synagogue that finally matters, the door to the temple of God in the city of God. I have opened the door into the very life of God. And finally, the door of opportunity. But there is another sense of the door, isn't there? The door was also the door of opportunity for those coming to Jesus that would now be permanently open. Isn't that amazing? And we hear this door door of opportunity described in Paul's letters. Listen to how Paul describes the door of opportunity in 1 Corinthians 16.9. Because a great door for effective work has opened for me and there are many who oppose me. 2 Corinthians 2, 12. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, or Colossians 4, 3, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. What the Holy Spirit is saying through John's message to his faithful church is that Jesus will keep the door open. The door to protection, it doesn't mean things will be easy, but he'll always keep that door open. The door to protection, the door of salvation, and the door of opportunity. And so no matter what they face, their faithfulness as a church first to love God with all their heart, mind, and strength, and then love their neighbor. Love always flows outward, doesn't it? Would allow other people to discover and join the kingdom way of, a living, of living a new relationship with Jesus that would transform their lives, their neighborhoods, and their cities. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this quite challenging. If we are to be described as, a faith, as faithful, as the church, 
then how are we obeying Jesus as a church? How are we being faithful to love first with our whole hearts so that we love and reflect this love in our neighborhood? You know, as a church, and we're the same, we're good at loving one another well, and it does witness to others, but how are we loving our neighbors, our neighborhood? And who is our neighbor? Do we have time for the people who live right next door to us? You know, Jay Pathak, I don't know if you've heard of him, in his book, Art of Neighboring, was reflecting on the greatest commandment to love God and love his neighbor and this call to neighbor love. And he realized that he did not know the neighbors directly around him. Look at this PowerPoint. He knew some of the names, but he had no idea what they did, what their lives were like, who they were. And they didn't know him either. So he decided to change that. Who? So he drew this little map of his house or his apartment and then just everybody around him. And it truly meant reorienting some of his practices and schedules so he could be around more to actually connect with people, so he could be creative about what his family did. And he began by slowly doing this map, and then bit by bit he'd write in names and people, so he would, I mean, he'd begin to pray for them, you know? Um, and he would get to know his literal neighbors. And then he took it a step further and gathered a bunch of church leaders, he was a pastor at the time, and they met with the mayor to see how they could serve their city. He thought, I need to take it, how can I serve my city? And this is what he, this is what he writes in Art of Neighboring. After the mayor left the meeting that day, our group of pastors was left to reflect on what he shared. I, Jay, can remember sitting there, before I could think, I just blurted out, am I the only one here who feels a little embarrassed? He's got an American accent, which I can't do, so hence the British accent. I mean, here we are asking the mayor how we can serve the city, and basically he's telling us that it would be great if we could just get our people to obey the second half of the great commandment. In a word, the mayor invited us, a room full of pastors, to get their people to actually obey Jesus. All right. I'm going to take it a step further. Loving our literal neighbors is a great place to start to live out what it means to be a faithful church. Here's Jay Pathak again. Not everyone in our neighborhoods is clean up, cleaned up and easy to be around. We need to be willing to follow Jesus, to hear Jesus' voice, and choose to be in others in uncomfortable situations. Because we can't always expect people to come onto our turf, right? We must be willing to go into their world, right? It starts with Jesus. It starts with Jesus and this loving relationship with him. This is the invitation in Revelation 3. This is our first place, personally and communally, and then trusting this spirit, the Holy Spirit, to direct us as we try and live it out. And it starts with really small steps. We don't respond out of a place of guilt or shoulds. I should be a better neighbor. Right? We give ourselves grace as it needs to become a way of life for us, not just something we do a couple of times a year as a church, right? It can't be program-driven. It must be life-driven. Remember who our Jesus is and why he can be totally trusted in these kinds of ways. Our God is holy. Our God is true. Our God is real, not fake. Our God is trustworthy and keeps his promises and our God is both the one who holds the keys to the door and the door. So it is Jesus who does the work of drawing people to who he is. We just have to be willing to make ourselves available to obey what he's asking. That's it. That's it. 
So how do we do this? We pray, we lean into Jesus, we worship our first love, Jesus, and we ask, Jesus, how can we obey you? How can we love our neighbors? Just like that image I shared earlier of the baby crying in the next room, or the papa, our granny, needing help. We hear Jesus' voice, we know it's him, and we respond with love, even if it's costly, and even if it's sometimes inconvenient. I wonder what God's invitation will be to you. Are our ears awake, as it says in Revelation 3, verse 13? Are our ears awake? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you and me, to all of us? Oh Lord, let us be the ones you call to be faithful. So let me just pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your word that speaks to us today and for your spirit that guides us and convicts us in a good way and fills us. And Jesus, we pray that you would help us return to you, our first love, to reorient our priorities to loving you with everything we have, with everything we are, and then loving our neighbors as ourselves. And we pray that we wouldn't do it out of guilts or shoulds, um, but we would, bit by bit, ask you, Holy Spirit, how we are to love those around us. And we know it's not going to be easy. There are going to be obstacles in the way. There's probably going to be resistance. But you're the one who opens the door. You're the one who opens the door. So we say we trust you, God. We trust you to do what you will do. And I just pray a blessing over you, Lord's Love Church, for the ways that you love one another so well and for the ways that you have a passion for mission and for God's word to get out there. And I just bless God to help you um, figure out what to do, the small steps to take. And I thank you so much for your presence here in this neighborhood and your presence in, different, in the different places that you live. In Jesus' name, amen.